IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and Brave New Worlds, and I also edit Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories, including Cats and Victory, about genetically engineered catmen and dogmen battling for control of a post-apocalyptic Earth. The story appeared in Lightspeed Magazine and on the Starship Sofa podcast, and will also be appearing in the upcoming anthology Lightspeed Year One. And our guest today is Genevieve Valentine. Her short stories have appeared in numerous best-of-the-year anthologies, and her first novel, Mechanique, about a post-apocalyptic steampunk circus, was just published by Prime Books. She's also a frequent columnist and reviewer for Lightspeed Magazine and Fantasy Magazine. All right, well, let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Genevieve Valentine. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Okay, so first of all, uh, tell us about your new novel, Mechanique. What's it about? Uh, Mechanique is about a group of circus performers in a sort of vague post-apocalyptic landscape where things have receded governmentally to a series of walled cities. And basically the only thing that travels now is this circus, which is made up of half-mechanical people, um, and the force that's keeping them together is very mysterious, even to the people in the circus. And as the war comes closer and closer to affecting them, uh, the circus starts to sort of fall apart. The circus is run by the ringmaster, who is known only as Boss, and she is the person who fits everybody out with what they need. And it differs from person to person, so you have the strong man who has the sort of reinforced skeleton, some of which is external and it's a spine made out of a bunch of junk. And uh, his assistant is actually powered by clockwork lungs that she made him, because when he brought her to him, uh, he was dying. Uh, the aerialists all have copper bones put in to make them lighter and more flexible so that if anything happens, they can be reconstructed, which is useful but suitably macabre, I hope. Okay, so could you tell us about how you developed the idea, and particularly what order did you decide to make it steampunk, post-apocalyptic, and about a circus? I've been a big fan of Cirque du Soleil since I was like nine, um, but I'd always been such a fan of the athleticism and the artistry that seems almost impossible. And the more you look into what's required for it, the more you realize it practically is impossible. And the amount of dedication that these athletes have is amazing. And it really was a short jump from thinking of it as that kind of dedication to thinking of it as a supernatural ability. And then from there, I just started free writing and everything else sort of fell into place as I went along. So I knew that I wanted to have some kind of visible supernatural element, which is where the mechanics came in. And then the rest of it just sort of panned out like a silent movie and you get the whole picture as I started writing. And did you know from the outset that it was going to be post-apocalyptic or is that something that developed kind of as you started writing it? It's actually something that developed as I started writing it. I figured that a circus like this could only exist in a world where there was nothing else that was traveling this way or as beautiful as this could be because they'd be run out of town if it was, you know, a suburb full of normal people. Um, and I really wanted to set them apart as much as I possibly could. So I made everyone else as confined as I could and as trapped, not just by the walls of their cities, but by the fact that they have no collective future or collective government to sort of give them a future to look forward to. So this circus sort of falls into their lives and is a life-changing experience in some cases. Uh, so have you, um, have you been to other circuses besides uh, Cirque du Soleil? And, uh, have you done a, and what kind of research did you do on circuses for the book? I have. I actually am really into the sort of circus at the local level. Um, my favorite circus in New York is actually a live-in circus at what's called the House of Yes. And they have a bunch of aerialists who basically do in-house shows there all the time. And a friend took me to one of them, and it was an outstanding experience. And I go back all the time, and I actually had my book launch party there. I sort of threw a circus because I loved the performers so much that I wanted to have some part of that attached to the book. Um, and so, I mean, I thought you really did a good job of sort of getting us inside the heads of the acrobats. I mean, I guess you did you do a lot of did you talk to the performers and interview them and stuff to, to kind of get that sort of insight? I did actually have a couple of friends who had done gymnastics training, um, and I looked up so many circus training videos on the Internet that you can't even imagine. <laughs> it's always It always seems to be more psychological than physical. 
um, which I guess a lot of Olympic athletes talk about also, where it's about jumping off the trapeze and knowing that the person is going to catch you. And that's something that no matter how many times you practice, it has to be that psychological belief that gets you through it. And if not, things fall apart. And so that was the principle that, that I took with me into writing the book. Like, what would you say was one of the most amazing videos you saw uh, in the course of doing that sort of research? I guess it's a cop-out to say Cirque du Soleil because they have a huge budget. But there is uh, an acrobatic act at the end of Kidam, I think it is, where it's a crew of acrobats on the floor. There's no, there's no nets, there's no wires, there's no nothing. And at different points, they manage to toss someone what looks like 20 feet up in the air and then form a stack of five people high with absolutely nothing to protect them if somebody falls. And even if you've seen a lot of other circus acts, and I've seen a lot of other more polished circus acts, there's just something about knowing that, that someone is five people high and there's absolutely nothing holding him there except that four shaky people underneath him that creeps you out just about the way I want you to be creeped out. Hmm. I mean, you talked about the almost sort of superhuman training regimens. I mean, what, what sort of, like, what's the, do, what's the daily life like in, in the life of one of these performers? Part of it would be telling tales out of school, but I do, I do know that one of the people I talked to about her routine pulled up her Google calendar for me briefly, and everything in it was covered. And I thought that it was a group calendar for a bunch of people, and it turns out it was just her calendar because she spends about nine or ten hours a day doing yoga, ballet, Pilates, strength training, and then going to rehearsal. Hmm. Um, and as someone who can barely walk to the train in the morning, <laughs> I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, so, uh, other than other than researching like actual circuses, were, th were there any books or uh, or movies or, or whatnot that were inspiration for you for you know creating your circus or um, or that served as research? There are a lot of beautiful circus books more on the art side than the mechanic side, which I think is equally important when someone is researching a book, not just the mechanics of the age, but getting a feel for how people interpreted the age they were living in. And that usually pertains more to historical novels, I would say. But definitely for something like this, I got several books on the history of Coney Island. There is a beautiful book, uh, an art book by, I think, Caution, called Circus. And it's so heavy that it takes two people to lift it, if <laughs> you're me. I mean, strong people can actually lift it. Uh, and it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures and posters and advertisement cards and ticket stubs. And just flipping through it, you realize that the circus was such a transformative experience for people for so many years before we had all the TV-type technology. That actually reminds me, you know, this, this book has uh, like a circus poster illustration in it and a number of other interior illustrations, which is kind of rare in novels these days, which I think is too bad because I really like that stuff. But... Could you talk about, you know, how, how this book came to have those interior illustrations and were you involved with that at all? I can, and I was. This <laughs> is going to be a good story then. Um, I had seen someone's work online. She had done sort of Art Nouveau ink drawing style, and I really, really enjoyed her style. And as I was trying to think about ways to get the word out about the book, uh, I contacted her and asked her if she would be interested in designing a bookmark for me that looked like a ticket to the circus. And we designed the bookmark together, and it looked fantastic. And I sent a copy of it to my publisher, who wrote back and said, is she available for covers and interior art? And the answer was yes. Uh, she read the entire book beforehand. She really had a feel for the mood that I wanted to convey. She did fantastic work. The detail is amazing. The one that's used most frequently is the griffin, and it appears on the circus ticket and on the spine of the book and on the interior of the book and at the end of the book and... If I had the guts to get a tattoo, probably <laughs> on my arm, but I don't, so it's not. It's a beautiful, clear line drawing of a griffin that in the book itself is endowed with a spoilery power, so we're not going to talk about it. But probably my favorite is one that she did of one of the aerialists alone in a tent, swinging back and forth on the trapeze and caught in that moment right before the trapeze swings back. And it was exactly how I had imagined it, and we hadn't talked about it beforehand, and so she sent it as one of the ones... Uh, for consideration and said, how about this? And I opened it up and just went, yes, yes, this forever. Uh, I mean, you said that the art did a good job of capturing the mood that you were going for. I mean, what kind of mood were you going for with the book? So for those who haven't seen the cover of the book, the cover of the book itself is overlaid a pair of wings, which is an important plot point. And then behind it is a scene of the circus. And there are some paper lanterns and a couple of bear bulbs that are falling apart. And they 
give off this beautiful light and then you can sort of see the silhouette of some of the people in the audience and then after that it's just darkness it falls quickly into darkness and I definitely feel like the style of the book which was not intentional but by the end was definitely how it had been written is like passing through a series of lights and everything else is in darkness and as we go faster and faster more of it is illuminated but definitely to start out with there's the idea of you see this one thing and then everything beyond it is out of your sight in the darkness for now. Uh, I mean, one thing that really sort of struck me about the prose style is that I think this book has more parentheses than any book that I can think ever? of. Is any that ever? <laughs> is that something that you're conscious of? Is that I mean, do you think more books should have more parentheses, or could you just, just talk about talk about that? <laughs> yes, I'm active in the parentheses coalition. We would like to see parentheses and semicolons make a comeback. <laughs> I actually have noticed that the two things that I tend to use on purpose stylistically the most often are parentheses and semicolons. And I'm not necessarily sure why, and sometimes in a story I'll only have one or two, but definitely as soon as I started writing this book, parentheses were everywhere and semicolons were everywhere. And it ended up really working, especially because the book jumps back and forth in time and switches narrators so much that I feel like the parentheses, rather than drawing the reader out of the story, actually helps ground them in what's going on. So occasionally you have a very unreliable narrator who says something, and then the parentheses is the omniscient narrator stepping back in and tying things together and helping you realize that one person had the correct version of events and one person has deluded themselves. So uh, this is your first novel that's been published, but is it the first one you've written? It is not the first one I've written. Um, there's a series of trunk novels from when I was 13 that are all terrible. You'll never <laughs> see those. The novel that I wrote right before this one is actually a secondary world sort of noir murder mystery character study. And after I finished that, I was looking for another project, and I was doing a lot of thinking and researching for the circus book, and I had an opportunity to write it, and I pounced on it. Could you tell, like, what the books that you wrote when you were 13, were they kind of standard epic fantasy kind of things, or, like, just what no, kind of... No, uh, the first book that I ever wrote was a very dark YA novel about a teenage assassin in a post-apocalyptic city, and names are used as currency, and she is an assassin, but she's the sort that has no money, and is purposely being kept in the dark. So she has, I think, a syringe of Drano because I was hardcore when I was 13. <laughs> um, and there's nothing remarkable about it except that my mother found the first couple of chapters, which are just chock full of our 14-year-old protagonist killing people and having sex. And she <laughs> turned it to me and she put it on my desk and she said, I am never going to tell you what you can and can't write. But maybe not this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, so in addition to these novels, uh, you've also, you've published uh, almost 40, 40 short stories in the, just the past two years. Um, Have I really? Yeah. <laughs> um, so are, are you, are you really actually just uh, producing stories that quickly or is these things that like you sort of had written in years, years ago and you, you know, you're just sort of polishing them as you go along and, and you're just, you know, sort of re reaching critical mass with, uh, um, with <laughs> readers and whatnot, or uh, how, how's that working? Uh, the first story I wrote for publication was in 2007. Uh, so I have not been, I have not been writing for that long. Um, I guess once I started, I just didn't feel like stopping ever. Uh, so if our listeners want to check out some of your short stories, uh, which ones would you recommend they try out first? Um, I do think seeing one of my stories from Clark's world is one of my favorite stories, partially because of the week that produced it, which was a week spent in Wyoming learning about astronomy. And for someone who had always wanted to, but felt like she was too science dumb to ever do it, that was a great experience. And I, the story is basically a love letter to astronomy in general. Thank you, everybody at Launchpad. I had a blast. Um, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> there's also a Trisalti tie-in story called Study for Solo Piano, which is a story at Fantasy Magazine. And I really love that one. It was a pleasure to write, and it actually was one of the things that sparked the idea that maybe the story of the Circus Trisalti is not over. I also have a story at Strange Horizons called Bespoke, um, and it is sort of an untraditional take on time travel that I really enjoy because it calls on my background as a complete costume nerd. And I had a story last year that went up at Lightspeed, uh, which is technically science fiction, but also sort of steampunky, called the Zeppelin Conductors Society Annual Gentleman's Ball, which is a very hard title to type and to say. I've never done it right the first time either way. 
Hmm. Um, and it sort of examines the underbelly of steampunk, which is that for every brave airship captain, there are probably eight or ten people running around on the ship who are considered expendable workers. And the story is from the point of view of one of those workers. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you're you're sort of a costuming nerd. I was looking at your blog earlier today, and there were all sorts of really detailed analyses of uh, costumes in various period dramas and stuff. Could you just, could you just talk about that uh, that interest of yours? When movies do costumes well, it's gorgeous. It's amazing, and you want to sit down and analyze every texture of every fabric that they used, and you want to know the science of the movie making behind it. Um, uh, in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for example, uh, Christopher Lee, who plays Saruman, has a series of robes that are actually made of heavily textured silk in slightly different colors and finishes that don't register as an actual pattern on the fabric, but something about the way the light hits them gives an impression of depth. And I really like that amount of detail. And when costumes are done well, I I really like picking it apart. When movie costumes are terrible and they are like the other Boleyn girl, when everyone is wearing terrible Butterick patterns of German court costumes from 20 years before the movie even takes place, it's fun to rip them apart. I think that Tarsim Singh has a really great feel for costume as a shortcut to talking about a character. So in the fall, every time a character appears, the costume does the work of some characterization also, which I think is one of the main things that a good costume will do. And even when there are historical movies where the costuming is completely inaccurate, they can be beautiful and evocative. And I'm going to call out Elizabeth on this one because there's a series of really iffy historical costumes in there, but it starts when Kate Blanchett as Elizabeth is supposed to be a teenager and she's wearing these very light fabrics and, you know, sweet flower embroidery and everything else. And by the end, she is in the huge Elizabethan silhouette that everyone associates with her in so many layers that she can hardly move in the full face of makeup and the pulled back hairline. And the through line of those costumes actually tracks how she becomes the character they mold her into. So even though the first 20 years of her reign are condensed into what looks like six months, the costumes are really gorgeous and well thought out, even if they're completely historically inaccurate. Uh, in addition to the fiction, uh, you also write a lot of nonfiction. Um, what are some of the, what, what are some of your uh, recent articles or reviews that you're particularly fond of? I have to say I have a soft spot in my heart for either the ones where I've done a bunch of research and it's more or less scientifically accurate, um, and reviews of truly, truly terrible movies. And I have a sliding scale for that. There are some movies that are considered terrible by almost everyone that I think are actually fantastic, like Earth Girls Are Easy, uh, which I'm going to have to actually sit down and write a defense of at some point because so many people hate on it. And I'm like, but it's joyful. <laughs> but there are a lot of terrible movies coming out now. And there's definitely a, a joy in sitting down and the, the lights going down in the theater and you thinking, this is going to be terrible, with a huge smile on your face. I mean, what are some, some examples of really bad movies that are nevertheless sort of must-see movies? Jonah Hex, which I keep telling people, and it seems like an obvious one, but it's really, really hard to find a bad movie that is actually laugh-out-loud funny. Um, a lot of them, like Priest that came out this spring with Paul Bettany in it, are bad in a sort of movie-by-committee grinding way where occasionally someone really picks up the idea of a, of a trashy movie and runs with it, and it's great, uh, which in that movie was Carl Urban. But so much of it is, you know, the drag and the annoying, and a couple of people are playing it straight, and you end up watching the movie feeling embarrassed for everyone. But in Jonah Hex, it is so terrible that you figure that everybody was in on the joke, and I laughed for 80 minutes. The movie is really short, by the way. The movie is, I think, 85 minutes or something. The movie is embarrassed to, to be this movie. <laughs> so but there were five minutes that weren't that, fu that weren't that funny? There were five minutes that weren't that funny. You know, credits were involved. Credits aren't funny. <laughs> uh, but they had me pretty much the moment where Jonah Hex walks up to the, you know, the disgusting sheriff's office and the grimy sheriff and the dirty deputies. And the, one deputy goes, Jonah Hex. And one goes... Jonah Hex. And the sheriff goes, Jonah Hex. And it cuts to Jonah Hex, and he goes, in all seriousness, that's me. <laughs> I was like, this movie is going to be amazing. I think actually one of the most memorable uh, reviews of yours that I read, I, I 
just was uh, reading in my blog, in my, in my feed reader. And I came across, you know, your latest post and it was, it was when uh sucker, when you reviewed sucker punch. Um, and I, I hadn't really, I hadn't planned on seeing that. I had heard like a lot of um, like terrible things about it, but I was like, so let me, let me see what Genevieve thought of it because I, I figured <laughs> that, that, you know, you'd be a good person to, to give me the, the lowdown on it. And man, that was a, that was a brutal review. Like, I mean, it looked like you had a lot of fun writing that one. That yes, clearly I thought for several days about the best way to phrase everything. Um, for those listening who are frantically trying to look this up on your feed readers, you're all very sweet. But mm. it was actually a collection of stills from the movie, promotional stills and stills from the trailer that were screen capped of what the women in this movie were wearing. Because of course the press had all been emphasizing how much of a feminist anthem this was and how it was women kicking ass and reclaiming their destinies and everything else. And everywhere you looked, it was fishnet stockings and the bottom of people's asses hanging out of their skirts. Oh, you can't say that. Wait, let me start sure over. Sure you can. Yeah, you can. This is a podcast. Really? You can fucking say anything you want. What? Mm-hmm. Uh, people's asses hanging out of their skirts and high heels no matter what. You know, there's a there's a shot of Emily Browning in the snow in a cropped sailor's top and the shortest sailor's skirt you've ever seen in your life and high-heeled boots standing two feet deep in snow waiting to fight ninjas. Hmm. You're like, first of all, this movie makes no sense. Second of all, you must be kidding me. And I actually got a lot of blowback on that because people kept trying to insist to me that it was perfectly possible to be super empowered feminist ladies, even if all you were doing was wearing fishnets and a bikini and mascara that was running from your super empowered tears so i I also saw on your blog that you've been to some steampunk sort of conventions and things just sort of what uh sort of what sort of involvement do you have with the steampunk subculture and uh what's uh what's kind of your take on that whole uh, phenomena i'm actually kind of coming into the steampunk subculture like you get into a cold pool like i put a toe in and it seemed like fun and then i wrote the book and thought maybe the steampunk community is something i should look into so i started going to cons I really have had a blast at steampunk conventions, uh, especially recently as they've started to actively engage with the idea of class and race and imperialism and all of that. I mean, just how did you get into fantasy and science fiction in the first place? And what were some of the books you read uh, when you were younger that really had a big influence on you? I think I fell into fantasy and science fiction naturally and just never came out of it um one of the first books that i read on my own and a book that i read every year probably still is peter s beagle's the last unicorn which i think is one of the best fantasy books there is every no matter what stage of life you are when you read it there is definitely something that resonates with you and it changes as you get older carl sagan's contact is probably that equivalent for me in science fiction i had read a lot of science fiction up to that point but this was the first near future science fiction where not only did I understand the science, but I was completely invested in what was going on. And I felt like the narrator was, I don't know. I mean, it was Carl Sagan. Like the narrator was sitting next to you, like, you can do it. You can understand everything I'm talking about. And even though I was like 12, I was like, I totally do. And then I looked into it later and was like, I absolutely don't. (laughs) Uh, And finally, just are there any other recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Sort of in the vein of nitpicking movies and TV, I have... Uh, a book that I co-authored coming out this summer called Geek Wisdom, which was hugely fun and involves picking your favorite nerd quotes of all time and then writing about what makes them so awesome, not just in that context, but in a wider context, which in many cases is great and philosophical and makes you look deeper into the soul of the geek. And in some ways it was just a way to fit Grabthar's hammer into something that I would actually get published, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was edited by... Steven Siegel, and it's coming out from Quirk in, I believe, August of this year. Could you give some example? Like, what's an example of, a, of some of the quotes from the book? One of my favorite quotes was from Batman Returns, and it was Catwoman's, life's a bitch, now so am I. <laughs> Even though it meant trying to talk about the entirety of the female superhero mythos in 150 words, which is no small feat. Um, I don't think I quite succeeded, but it's always fun to talk about Catwoman. Except when she's Halle Berry, yeah, and it's just sad to talk about Catwoman. Hmm. Or Anne Hathaway? I refuse to talk about <laughs> Anne Hathaway's Catwoman. <laughs> I don't know what Christopher Nolan was thinking. I really thought that he had improved his ability to cast lady people 
when we got Inception and it was Ellen Page and Marianne Cotillard, both of whom were very good actresses. And then rather than cast Marianne Cotillard as Catwoman, which is what I thought he was going to do, he cast Anne Hathaway, who is an interesting choice. <laughs> I definitely have some more articles and short stories coming out this summer. Again, you can track everything on my blog uh, at GenevieValentine.com. All right, great. Well, Genevieve Valentine, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks again to Genevieve Valentine for joining us on the show. All right, so for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about bad movies. And, and Genevieve's going to be so sad that she's not going to be part of this. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the first thing to say about that is that there are a lot of bad fantasy and science fiction movies. So obviously, you know, we can't... Uh, do any kind of comprehensive uh, <laughs> overview of all of them. Uh, I mean, like, if you go on Netflix and you look at, uh, you know, like the f fantasy and science fiction movies that are available for instant download, there's just so many movies I've never heard of that, you know, <laughs> looks just look so terrible. And uh, I'm always kind of, you know, puzzled when people say they don't like science fiction because I just think of all the books I've read. I'm like, wow, there's so many great books. How can people not like this stuff? But then you think, like, most people don't read books. You know, they just go on Netflix and go to the fantasy and science fiction category for instant download and see what's there. And when you look at that, you can sort of understand why people, uh, you know, think of most fantasy and science fiction as being bad, you know? Well, you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, anything that I stumble across on Netflix instant download that is a movie that I haven't heard of that doesn't have any people, any actors in it or any directors or writers that I've ever heard of, you know, involved with it. Like, I just assume that that's going to be bad, you know? So, I mean, if that's, if that's how you're finding stuff, then, you know, you're sort of setting yourself, setting yourself up for failure. Um, but I mean, I think when you're talking about uh, bad movies, you kind of have to draw the line somewhere when you're talking about them and saying, okay, well, look, we're going to talk about like major releases here, not just, not like every movie that's been made, like, you know, even with a, with a, um, you know, little tiny budget. I mean, some movies with a small budget are really good, like that movie Primer we've talked about um, on the show before. But, um, you know, I mean, most movies that have like a very small budget and, you know, they're so-called B movies, you know, I mean, they're, they're not really going to have much of a chance of being good just because, uh, you know, there's no money to spend on production value, to spend on good actors or to, you know, or to even just polish the script. But so I think I want to start out talking about sort of movies that we've seen in movie theaters and, mm -hmm. uh, can you just think of any movies that you're sitting in a theater and they're just so bad that you you can't control yourself from just groaning or, <laughs> you know, making snide comments and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I've got plenty of those. Um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Battlefield Earth. Um, you, saw although, that in a, you saw that in a theater? <laughs> I did. Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I was in I was in college and, and you know, it was like, uh, you know, I was with my friends and, and we were like, you know, oh, that, you know, that might be fun, you know, and so we went to see it and... But yeah, just one of the, and, and I mean, we saw it like on opening night or something too. So I mean, we wouldn't have heard that it was like one of the worst movies ever made. But uh, yeah, I actually, I did see it in the theater and it was really hard to sit through because I was with people, so I couldn't leave. I, I would have left. I would have left. And, uh, you know, we can, we're going to talk about, you know, movies that we've actually walked out on later. But I mean, um, I, I certainly would have uh, con strongly considered uh, walking out of that one if I hadn't been with people. Did you... Like, did you know right off the bat that this was going to be one of the worst movies you'd ever seen? Or is it, was it like sort of okay for 20 minutes or something? Um, I don't remember how quickly it, it became apparent. Uh, I mean, you know, as soon as you see John Travolta on screen, it's pretty, you know, pretty clear. Like, oh, like what, <laughs> what did they do to him? You know, it's like, that's, that's terrible. And so were you, like, were you or the people around you, like, actually saying, like, this is like turning to people next to you and saying, like, this is <laughs> terrible and stuff like that? Yeah, and I don't recall that happening. Um, the, I, yeah, because I hate because I hate it when people talk during the movie so much. Like I, I just I'm I'm sort of attuned to not do that. The only time I can really remember doing that um, was fairly recently. Like Genevieve Valentine and I actually uh, we went to see Tron Legacy together, and uh, and she and, you know I think she can't restrain herself from from making comments, and and that actually made the movie more enjoyable. I think because I had her her running commentary um, as we were watching it. Yeah, no, I, it, it drives me crazy when people talk in movies, and, and we'll we'll talk about that later. But mm -hmm. the, the the one time I can think of that I was unable to restrain myself <laughs> from making a comment during a movie it was uh, Steven Spielberg's AI, mm -hmm. um, which I mean, in the grand scheme of things, is probably not that bad of a movie. But <laughs> there's just something about that movie for me. It's like nails on a chalkboard. I just I, mm -hmm. I just I hate it out out of all proportion, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm right there with you, brother. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't know, for people who don't know, this is uh, very loosely based on a Brian Aldis story called Super Toys Last All Summer Long. And the first part of the movie, which is fairly good, basically follows the short story where there's a, a family and uh, in, the, in the movie their, their son is in a coma or something and so they get a, like, a little robot kid to, to be their kid. But then the kid, the, the first kid wakes up and then the robot, you know, is kind of like he has no, he's not wanted anymore. And the story, it's sort of about the, um, the wrongness of creating something that's going to love you when you're not capable or prepared to love it back. Mm-hmm. And which I think is is a is a really interesting theme. But so that's the first part, and then the kid gets <laughs> gets sort of dumped by the side of the highway, and then it turns into like Pinocchio, like Pinocchio with robots, and and pretty much nothing from that point on makes any sense. Or mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I just I like every, every it's like five different movies from that point on, each one of which I hate more than the one that preceded it. <laughs> Um, but the, the point I finally lost it was, uh, the kid ends up, uh, he finds his way back to the scientist who created him and finds out that there's all these other like robot versions of himself in the workshop and stuff. And he says something like, I feel like my brain is melting. And in the theater, I just burst out. I'm like, kid, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> and someone behind him was like, shh. And, uh, that was the only time I've ever, uh. I've ever had, you know, usually I'm the one shushing other people, but <laughs> that movie, I just, I just lost it. I just, God, I hate that movie so much. <laughs> I, I actually, I really hate it too. And, um, it, it came out, um, right around the time when, uh, you know, I, I was still sort of new working at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And, uh, and, you know, so it was like a major release and, and, you know, so it was something that I went to go see right away because, uh, I knew that we would be reviewing it and I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to like read the review without having seen the movie because I was anticipating really liking it because I you know it's like oh Stanley Kubrick started it and then Steven Spielberg finished it that was before that was when I still thought that Steven Spielberg knew how to make movies mm-hmm. or knew how to make science fiction and in retrospect I see that he's actually you know he's ruined a lot of science fiction movies so um, but anyway uh, yeah I mean um, and, and so I but after I saw it and I had a similar reaction to you. Um, I, I was sort of gratified to see uh, Lucia Shepard uh, review it for FNSF and, and just like completely trash it. And it was like, oh, this was this was such great fun reading this review. You know, I mean, it was because it was like, yes, 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 exactly that. Yes. I guess I guess you mentioned, you know, that you went to see um, Battlefield Earth with a bunch of friends who weren't really into science fiction. And certainly, you know, I had that experience when I was in college. You know, I was always dragging my friends, you know, any like any science fiction movie at all that came out. You know, I'm like, guys, you got to go see this. And and they're like yeah whatever and so I would drag them all out to see it and and the movies are almost always bad you know if you're a science fiction fan you just you know particularly back then you know you just wanted to see anything you know mm-hmm. like science like science fiction was in such short supply that you know anything you know like I got to go see this but uh, the the sort of most disastrous ones I guess went for doing that was uh, you know I dragged because I, I dragged my friends out to a bunch of sort of bad science fiction movies all in a row and then we went and saw Lost in Space. <laughs> And uh, and that was the last straw. Like they're like, no more. <laughs> You're never taking us to another science fiction movie ever again. Uh, did you ever? Did you see that one? Did you see Lost in Space? I did see it, but I don't really remember it. Like I don't remember. I, I didn't remember hating it. Like like you're describing that. You know, it was the last straw for your friends. But you know, I assume it was just completely forgettable. And yeah, no, it is. It's it's really forgettable. Actually, the the only thing I remember about it is that. This was actually, it was kind of interesting. Uh, it, it wasn't done well at all, but Gary Oldman gets kind of stung by some weird insect spider, some uh, alien spider or something, and he has a uh, a wound that's festering, and he doesn't want to show the other people how bad it's getting. And then they encounter some weird, scary, spidery, spidery alien who is somehow him from the future, having been turned into this weird monster by this sting. That's the only. Then uh, that, that was kind of cool. Um, that's the only. That's literally like, the only thing about the entire movie that I remember at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, this same roommate, my college roommate, and I, we did end up going to see this terrible movie called The Omega Code. Uh, you familiar with that? No, I never heard of that. Um, it, uh, Casper Van Dien is in it. You know, uh, yeah, he's, Starship he's, he's like Troopers. This, yeah, the star of Starship Troopers. Yeah. Um, and uh, we saw like posters for it, and like, it looked like it was about genetic engineering, and it was like an indie. It looked like it was some sort of indie film, but actually, it was some sort of religious thing apparently, and it was about like the evils of genetic engineering. It's, oh God, it's so terrible. 
And and we we sort of we we knew things got off on the wrong foot because when we went in the theater, there was, I mean, there was hardly anyone there, which wasn't you know wasn't that unusual. But I mean, there was there was just a few people there. But then they started talking to us and they were asking us, so so what church do you go to? <laughs> um, and I was like, um, why are they asking us that? And uh, and then it, it soon became clear. Okay, because because the other like really disastrous experience I had like that is uh, my girlfriend in college, you know, was not into fantasy and science fiction at all, and uh, I took her to see Dracula two thousand, <laughs> and um, you know, and I was like so excited to see it because I I don't remember whether Wes Craven if he produced it or what he did, but somehow his mm-hmm. his they were marketing it heavily as like Wes Craven presents Dracula right. two thousand, and so I was like, guys, this is going to be great. It's like Wes Craven reinvented the slasher film with scream and now he's going to do the same thing with dracula it's going to be amazing and i'm just oh this movie is so bad it's it's like <laughs> you know it's it's like i don't know it's, it's just it's like a super kind of it looks like a super low budget thing there's just like it's got also um oh what's her name seven of nine um oh yeah jerry ryan yeah and just the whole movie is just so cheesy and so bad uh and it has kind of an interesting twist i mean the twist makes no sense whatsoever but uh <laughs> So it turns out at the end that Dracula is Judas Iscariot. <laughs> and uh, well, okay. see, and that's why he doesn't like crosses, right? Because yeah, uh-huh. he, remem- yeah, yeah. he remembers, you know, having betrayed Jesus, and uh, yeah, yeah. the memories are still kind of painful. And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, we could we could probably do a whole episode on on movies that are ruined by their stupid twists. You know, starting with uh, M Night Shyamalan. <laughs> We could do a whole episode just on like bad movies by M Night Shyamalan. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, I mean, the, it, he's he's sort of an example where it's like you know I I was really excited by The Sixth Sense, you know I didn't know anything about it going into it, and, and I saw it and I and I thought it was great, and then like immediately right afterward, like I know some people liked Unbreakable, but like I mean I actually hated that. Um, in retrospect, I've sort of gone back and watched it and thought, eh, it's not as bad as I thought it was, but I still don't like it. Um, but then like I mean every other movie, I mean he hasn't made any other good movie. Ever since then, I mean, and some people will say, "Oh, well, even the Sixth Sense wasn't good." But you know, I haven't gone back and rewatched it immediately. But um, it's just—it's like he's getting progressively more awful. You know, I mean, to the point where, like, I mean, I wouldn't actually even go watch a movie by him. Um, the only reason I, I saw the happening is, you know, because our friend Chris had um, insisted it was the worst movie ever made, like, like hands down, worst movie ever made. Like, you know, it has no competition. You know, it's it's worse than everything that we've mentioned already. Um, you know, and, uh, and it's, and it's because it's ironic that the movie's called The Happening because nothing actually happens <laughs> in it, right? Um, were you there when we did the movie night with that? With The Happening? Yeah. No, no, I've never, I've never seen it. No, I, oh, okay. Go ahead. I haven't seen an M. Night Shyamalan movie since <laughs> The Village. I okay. You know, that was the last straw for me. Right, right, right. Um, and so, you know, uh, our, our, a group of a, fr- a group of my our friends, you know, we got together and did like a movie night to to watch the happening because our friend Chris was just like, oh, you know, you got to see it because it's it's hilarious, it's so awful, and it, it's it's pretty terrible. I have to agree. I mean, it's it's certainly in the running for worst movie ever. Um, you know, but uh, I mean, I don't have the experience of having seen it just fresh. I, I I was watching it with my friends who were all laughing at it, so I mean, it was a different experience than Chris would have had when he watched it and just thought it was terrible. But yeah, and then and then you know, like I'm a big fan of the Avatar, Avatar: The Last Airbender. But I mean, I can't bring myself to watch the movie. I mean, it, first of all, uh, it got so many terrible reviews. But then also, just like I mean, Shyamalan's ruined so many other movies, you know, in the last decade that you know, like why would I, why would I subject myself to that and like ruin my, possibly ruin any of my memories of the of the animated series with uh, his adaptation? So, mm-hmm. and I was never really all that enamored with The Sixth Sense to begin with. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a well done movie, but like everyone so was so blown away by the twist ending. And at the at the time, I mean, you know, I was submitting stories to magazines, and so like the guidelines for Weird Tales magazine, one of the things it said is like, do not send us a story where the character turns out to be a ghost at the end. Like, hmm. you know, we've seen we've seen every possible variation of it. It's so overdone, mm-hmm. you know, and they sort of described what it, what it would be like. You know, the character, like, goes around, and it's a little bit dreamlike, and people don't seem to pay, be paying that much attention to him and stuff, and then it turns out he's a ghost at the end. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, you know, so when I watched The Sixth Sense, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, it was a pretty good, it was an okay movie, but, you know, they just did that mm-hmm. ending that's been done a million times before, and so mm-hmm. it just never struck me as that amazing. Right. But, uh... <laughs> All right, but so I don't think I've ever actually walked out of a movie in the movie theater that I can think mm-hmm. of. But you, but I mean, because that's the, that's the thing. Like you're always saying that you, you know, you have sort of a slush a slush pile approach to entertainment, where you know if something's not working for you, you know, you yeah. have to stop. You know, because I almost always finish. You mm-hmm. know, I almost just just sort of out of inertia or whatever. I almost always finish stuff once I start it. I've, I've started more just you know 
giving up on things, but still my, my, my general pattern is I'll probably watch it, but you, but your general pattern is that you just walk out of things. So, I mean, does that extend mm-hmm. also to movies in the theater? Uh, it would, uh, except that, uh, you know, a lot of times I'm with people and so I w- I'm not going to do it then. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the only one that I could actually think of that I walked out of was this movie called Equilibrium. Did you see that? No, no. Uh, it's like, it's like this, it, it was like this sort of this post matrix movie that was trying to capture the, the sort of Kung Fu coolness of the matrix, you know, and like the, the stylized Kung Fu type of thing. And it's just like, I found it really obnoxious. And I mean, it has like so much like going for it that would make that would lead me to believe that I would like it. I mean, it's like in, it's set in this dystopian future and it's got all this, you know, stylized kung fu stuff and I mean, it's just like it's just so nonsensical. Um and uh I I remembered uh when I I remember like when I went to the, see this movie, I had I had noted somewhere that the that the particular theater had a money uh <laughs> a money back policy. So like if you left in, you know, before halfway through the movie or something, like, you know, you could get your money back. So like I mean, I was done after 10 or 15 minutes and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm leaving. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not paying for this piece of crap. Um, and, you know, like, I mean, I must have had other things to do or whatever. So I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and, and suffer through this when it's obviously so terrible. So my the only thing I can really think of is, you know, my grandmother walked out of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, <laughs> really? That's that's my the closest I've been to walking out of a movie. Yeah, she uh, it got to the part where uh, it's a Judge Doom. Is that his name? Yeah. He dips the little, like, cute shoe tune and dip, uh-huh. and it, like, screams and evaporates or whatever. And, yeah. and my grandmother was like, I'm, I'm not watching this movie. That's a mean thing to do to a cartoon shoe. And... <laughs> <laughs> of all things to walk out of a movie for. Yeah. Um, but, like, actually, actually, Equilibrium, I've never seen that, but um, I've seen... On YouTube, they have I've watched music videos that people have made by taking the action scenes from that movie and oh. you know setting them to music, and it seems to have actually pretty good action scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing, like it's the same. I can't think of the guy's name. It's the the guy he developed the gun kata thing. It's like mm-hmm. this like made up martial art where you like twist your body around to like statistically dodge where the bullets are going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also did a movie called Ultraviolet, oh, um, uh-huh. which I've also never seen. But I've seen music videos that people have made from. Well, it seemed to be pretty good action scenes. So uh, mm-hmm. that's that's the thing. I mean, a lot of the I mean, usually like like these bad movies. Like, what makes them bad is the particularly the dialogue, like the characters and the dialogue, and you know, often the plot doesn't make any sense. But a lot of them have pretty good action scenes, and there's a lot of movies where I wish that you know, I wish that you could just go see sort of the 20 minute version, you know, and it would just mm-hmm. be the action scenes, and you know, then you would just go and see it and leave. I really wish there was something like that for Transformers Three. <laughs> um, yeah, because the, the Cliff Notes version. Well, yeah, just, just like just the just like the special effects real version, because uh, <laughs> right. because you know the special effects. I mean, you know, I mean, Industrial Light and Magic they do pre- a pretty good job with the uh, the the special effects. But like Transformers, it's like 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 Transformers Two. I mean, it's just like so. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> it's just it's just so painful. Like the the dialogue and stuff and the story is so painful. But I really want to see the special effects. You know, I was I was mm-hmm. watching. You know the. Uh, the trailer for Transformers 3, and, you know, there's, like, the people in the squirrel, flying squirrel suits jumping out of the plane while the building's falling over, and there's Transformers transforming in the air and stuff. I'm like, man, I would really like to see these action scenes on a big, you know, on, like, mm-hmm. an IMAX screen or something, but there's no way I'm sitting through another one of those, you know, one of <laughs> another one of those stories. I just I just can't do it. I just, I, I yeah. just can't, you know. Yeah, you know, I was asking people on Twitter what their uh, what what they thought the worst science fiction or fantasy movie is, and several people actually did say Transformers or Transformers Two. Um, I, I have I've actually never seen Transformers Two because I hated Transformers One so much. But um, I'm actually not even that enamored with the special effects uh, personally. Like, I mean, yeah, like or the action because it's just like it's so much going on on the screen. Like I, I honestly, I can't process it. Like I, I, I can't follow what's happening. Like, and, and when the transform, I mean, I think we probably talked about this before, but I mean, like when the transformers transform it, I don't buy it. Like, it, I don't believe that, that this car is going to transform into that robot. Like it doesn't look like it makes sense, you know? And that's something that like, I remembered from the cartoons, like, well, at least they made some effort to make it actually look like, like this car is turning into this robot, you know? Um, whereas in the movie, it's just like, I don't, that doesn't look anything at all. Like, like that's the same, you know, creature or whatever that same robot. Like I don't believe it, you know. I, and so that sort of ruins it for me. Like, like what movie have you watched that surprised you the most? How bad it was? Like you were expecting <laughs> it to be good, and then you're just like, I can't believe how wrong I was about this movie. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the Phantom Menace uh, sort of uh. sticks out. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I, I guess 
you know, if I had uh, been realistic, if I had been honest with myself, I probably could have anticipated that it wasn't going to be as amazing as I was hoping. But I mean, honestly, that was like, I was so excited for that to come out that, you know, I mean, I didn't, I honestly, I didn't look at anything. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't try to find out anything about the movie. It's like, well, obviously I'm going to go see it as soon as humanly possible. So I don't want to find out anything about it. So, I mean, I went into it completely fresh, but I mean, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was so disappointing. I mean, um, and, and like right from the get go, you know, when those trade federation guys start babbling their gibberish, uh, on screen and they look so stupid and yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I had that sinking feeling right away. Um, and you know, never went away. I mean, like, like when I went and saw Lost in Space, I mean, back then, I mean, you know, you would just see the trailer and you're like, oh, it's a spaceship. I'll go see that. And, mm-hmm. and now, like, you know, like, Months before the movie even comes out, you, you you basically have a pretty good sense of whether you know whether it's going to be any good or not, um, and like with Rotten Tomatoes and everything. Do you think there's any hope that that is going to make movies better? That because I I feel like particularly with science fiction that um, for a long time there was this perception on the part of studios that if they just made a science fiction movie, you know a certain number of people like like me would go see it mm-hmm. no matter what, and so if they just made it cheaply enough, it was sort of a guaranteed. Guaranteed profit. I mean, not like a huge profit, but, you know, uh, enough to make it worth their while. And I wonder now that audiences have so much more access to information about upcoming movies if uh, that that's going to change. Uh, I don't see it for I don't I don't foresee it changing. Not as long as people keep going to see crap like Transformers 3 and, and making it one of the biggest movies ever. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like it's so depressing. I mean, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't see it making much of an impact. I mean, you know, because even when these movies are terrible, people still go see them and they still, and they're still profitable. I mean, you know, there are, there are flops now and then, um, and probably partially due to, uh, negative reviews. But I mean, I think even, even the Shyamalan Avatar, the last airbender movie made money, didn't it? You know, even though like, I don't, I don't think that there's anyone in the world who thought it was good. I mean, every review I've ever seen of it has been scathing. You know, including people who love, love, love the TV show. So, I, I don't see that changing. I'm, well, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think Transformers 3 is sort of like an outlier kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just because it's just such a big event. And, and just because, I mean, in my opinion, the idea of robot, you know, cars turning into robots and smashing into each other is so innately entertaining <laughs> that, yeah. you know, even Michael Bay can't totally fuck it up. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, he... He tries his best, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, cause even, you know, if, I mean, I hated Transformers too. I mean, I agree with <laughs> whoever was saying it. It's like, maybe it's one of the worst movies I've ever seen, if not the worst movie, you know, but then the trailer for Transformers three comes out and I'm like, Oh, I kind of want to go see that, <laughs> you know, because I want to see the, the robots, yeah. you know? So, right, I right. mean, I, I think when something's that, that much of a visual spectacle, I think that that kind of, you know, all the rules go out the window. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for sort of, not for like mega blockbuster franchise kind of things like that, but like a, a sort of more like a, you know, sort of average budget kind of stupid science fiction, like, like, you know, like, like, like you were saying, like you go on Netflix and mm-hmm. inst- instant download, and there's just all these like sort of lowish budget kind of stupid movies. I mean, do you think that those kind of things are still going to keep getting made? Uh, yeah, I think so. Just because I think that there must be, there must be an audience for that. I mean, look, look, look what the sci-fi channel airs in their movies of the week and, and then the movies that they just air. I mean, like there's, there seems to be a lot of people who like just like schlocky science fiction movies and like they don't even care that they're terrible or maybe they enjoy them because they're terrible. I mean, like, I mean, certainly Genevieve enjoys a lot of movies because they're terrible, but, um, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, like, you know, my mom watches a lot of these things and like, you know, she like she also likes good science fiction movies and I don't understand how she can watch them. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't I don't I think that there must be some sort of business model there that we don't get. Yeah, I don't I don't see that. I don't I don't think that the movies like you're talking about, like are made or, or uh, can be made or broken by reviews at all. Like, I don't think those factor in at all. Actually, you know, Genevieve was saying, are there any movies like Genevieve was saying that uh, like people generally generally regard Earth Girls Are Easy as really bad, but she really likes it. Are there movies mm-hmm. like that for you where, probably not actually, because you're, 
you tend to be fairly critical of stuff, but I mean, I don't, are, are there any things where, you know, they're generally thought to be bad and you're like, Hey, actually this is better than people give it credit for. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't happen as often for me, I guess, cause I am, like you say, I am pretty critical, but I mean, like there's movies like Starship Troopers that I think that are, are pretty reviled by most people, but I mean, like, I think it's actually misunderstood. And I mean, I think we, we probably talked about it on the show before. Um, I mean, but I mean, it's like, it's a movie that's not a faithful adaptation of the book and, and it actually kind of undermines, uh, much of the point of the book. But, uh, but I mean, I love, like the satirical take on it and i mean there's not uh, and there's a lot of great like fighting alien bug monsters in it and uh, i mean there's not enough power armor in it for me um but uh i mean i actually enjoyed it and and admittedly i haven't i haven't tried watching it in several years but you know so there's that um and uh, i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of like 80s action movies that most people don't think are good like i mean which also movies we talked about on the show before but like predator and and um um you know like the running man like a lot a lot of people like don't think that those are good movies you know but i mean like i'll go to the mat for those you know like predator and the running man those are like two of my favorite movies and like robocop you know i mean um there's a lot of movies like that that i I just love and um you know most people would probably say that they're bad you know there's a there's a smaller movie uh there was a tales like the first tales from the crypt movie they did um you know tales from the crypt was this tv show on hbo and and so they did a movie um called tales from the crypt demon night and uh um i mean honestly i really i like love that movie and uh like nobody else seems to like it um this was another one that i i had suggested to for movie night with our friends and and this wasn't like intended to be a bad movie night this was like i actually like this movie and i think you guys will like it and nobody else seemed to like it but um you know, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, it's like it's it, it, it's a B movie, you know, but like I think it's actually really good. I mean, it's you know, I, I think it doesn't have great production values. But I mean, I like the storyline and I think the characters are really good. I think the performances are really good. So like, I don't know. I mean, I just really like it. And uh, I'm probably very much in the minority. Well, like, you know, one, one thing when I was uh, when I was living in Austin, one thing we did was I just heard about this movie Plan 9 from Outer Space, mm-hmm. which is, you know, sort of notorious as being the worst movie ever made. And so we got it, and so we told my my friend my my roommate's brother that uh, that this was generally regarded as a classic. This is like considered one of the best movies ever, and we were just going to see how long it would take him to realize that this is actually really bad, or like whether he would you know whether he would say anything you know, because this is I mean this is like a super low budget movie. It's you know it's like black and white. They're like the UFOs are like paper plates hanging from strings and. You know, like the, uh, the, this was Bela Lugosi's last movie and, uh, he died, you know, like four days into shooting or something. And, uh, so, so the director, Ed Wood, he found, it was like his, his wife's chiropractor or something like that sort of looked like Bela Lugosi from the eyebrows up. So he cast him to replace him. And, and so the guy would just hold a, like a cape over his face for the whole, for the whole movie. <laughs> so you could, so you could sort of couldn't tell it was, you know, it wasn't the same person. I think I think one one science fiction movie I just want to mention that that deserves just sort of special uh, mm-hmm. um, condemnation is the uh, the iRobot movie with Will Smith. Oh, oh my God! Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, as a movie, it's like a like taken on its own merits. It's a kind of like eh, it's sort of a sub-average action movie, I guess. But just as a you know, just mm-hmm. having taken the name from the Isaac Asimov book, just just renders it just one of, one of the most horrific. You know, just it's just <laughs> it's just an atrocity. It's just uh, you know such a travesty. Um, and I mean that that was one where just just watching it, you know, I was just, it's it's almost like it's like like a parody of like how badly Hollywood handles science fiction properties. You know, it's like. It's just, it's, it's like every, you know, it's like every cliche you could possibly imagine about how to take something, you know, and completely reverse the message and completely just mm-hmm. put it through the fucking um, <laughs> meat grinder, you know, sausage factory to just turn out this like stupid Hollywood product, uh, no matter what you uh, stick in the top. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know the story behind that. I mean, um, you know, that movie was actually not based on Asimov at all. Like, you know, it was a, there was like a script, I think it was called Hardwired, that would sort of been bouncing around Hollywood. And then when the director came on, um, he started calling it iRobot. And, uh, you know, I guess someone must have said, oh, well, you know, there's this book called that. And so, like, they basically, they went and acquired the rights to the book. And then they sort of grafted on some Asimov stuff. Like, as, I think they grafted on the laws, right? Like, the laws of robotics or something. Mm, yeah. uh, like, I don't remember the movie, really, because I hated it as well. And I, I'm sure I didn't watch the whole thing. But, um, 
that's why it bears no resemblance to the book I robot because it was actually there was an existing screenplay that they just sort of grafted some Isaac Asimov elements onto it um, so that they could use it so that they could call it iRobot. I mean, <laughs> it's like really, um, but yeah, no, I, actually, you know, now that you mention it, I may have actually walked out of the theater when I saw that because I want to say that I I did see it in the theater and I'm sure I've never seen the whole movie, so that's an, it's entirely possible I did walk out of that one. Um, I, I, I guess I, I said that we would come back to the topic of uh, people talking during movies. Oh, yeah. um, and so I, I really vividly remember the first time that happens, you know, that a movie was just absolutely ruined by someone talking during the movie, is I went to see this movie called FX. And uh, I, I don't think it's well remembered. It's sort of, from what I remember, it's about these, like, uh, special effects guys in Hollywood who, like, go to work with the police and, you know, use their special effects knowledge to help out the police or something mm-hmm. like that. Is Brian Dennehy in that? I don't know. I saw this when I was a real little kid. But uh, there was this kid sitting behind me, and he just talked. Through, he like, at, like, you know, like, kids will, like, just ask question after question after mm-hmm. question. He did that through the entire movie. And the, the, the part I really remember was that there's a part where, you know, there's this guy who's, there's, like, a serial killer who's murdering women. And so one of the cops dresses up, you know, they use, like, special effects to make him kind of look like a woman. And then, like, he's pretending to take a shower. And then, you know, they're expecting the killer to come in and try to, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kill the woman. And, and the cop's going to arrest him. And th- But then the killer, like, sneaks in some other door and sneaks up behind the guy and, like, stabs him, like, 50 times. Mm-hmm. And this kid behind me is like, is he dead? Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, no, kid, he's just fine. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah, and... <laughs> <laughs> And and he's just yeah it's like and any any movie like it doesn't matter how good it is if someone is, if there's like a kid mm-hmm. behind you asking questions through the entire movie it's it's totally ruined and that happened to mm-hmm. me fortunately not the first time I saw Lord of the Rings but I think mm-hmm. or you know Fellowship of the Ring but I think it was the second or third time in the theater I saw it there was a kid behind me the whole movie he's like is that a troll is that a wizard mm-hmm. is he riding an eagle does he have a staff <laughs> like seriously the, the whole movie and <laughs> and it just it it, it ruined you know and you turn you know like you're like shh. And and the kid will be like quiet for like a minute, and then like start up again, <laughs> and and after like after you shushed somebody like three times or something, you're like I don't even know what what else I can do here, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. You know, you know what I think that they should do in movie theaters now. It's like you know they make a big deal about putting like these slides on the screen that say you know silence your cell phones or whatever, and like uh, and the other warnings. It's like how about you put a number on the screen that I can text while I'm in the theater when somebody's being a jerk, and that it'll send an usher in there to remove their stupid asses. How about that? Make the cell phones work for us instead of against us. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, because the thing is, like when you're sitting in a theater, a lot of times, and it's dark and someone's behind you, you can't tell how. Uh, physically intimidating they might be, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. So like you're like, oh, I just want to tell this guy to shut up, and you know. <laughs> but it, like you imagine, like in you know, in your mind, you're like, well, what if he's like some like giant like MMA fighter kind of guy, you know, or <laughs> something. And so that's a problem because a lot of times, you know, there's, there's like someone behind you and they're just annoying you so much, and you want to be more, you, know, you want to be more aggressive about telling them to shut up, but you're afraid that they might be really big. And then like the lights go up and you see it's just like some little guy. You're like, God damn it! If I'd known the guy was that small, I would have <laughs> would have yelled at him more. Right. It's really sad that, you know, you have to go through that. And I mean, it's like, that's one of the things that's uh, certainly hurting movie theaters. But, um, you know, uh, I mean, especially when, you know, I have, like, I have like a 70 inch TV. So, I mean, you know, like, why am I going to subject myself to that kind of experience when I, I know if I just, you know, I wait a couple months. I mean, now, you know, movies come out in a couple months, not a year. So um, if I just wait a couple months, I can watch it in the comfort of my home and, and enjoy it probably more. So. Yeah, like, you know, like, like when I was living in Austin, you know, there was a period, my friends and I were, we were really into movies, and we were going to see, I don't know, like, three movies a week, you know, every week, something like that, and, and yeah, it just got to the point where, like, so many, I just had so many bad experiences with people in theater, I just, like, gave up on, like, seriously, for, like, a year, I, I just didn't go to any <laughs> movies in the theater, uh, like, like, especially, like, I think the last straw is there was one, there was somebody brought their baby into the movie there, mm-hmm. and, you know, like, the baby starts crying, and, you know, they get up and, and go like over, you know, to the, to the door at the front of the theater and just like stand there and you're like, no, you know, I can still hear your baby, you know? <laughs> and then they'll like go out and the baby stops crying. They come in and the baby starts crying again. And, oh, and it's like, why would you, like, why would you, I don't understand. Why would you bring a little baby like that to the movie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember I, the, the first time I remember this really annoying me was uh, when I went to go see a really terrible movie, which I'm kind of surprised we haven't mentioned yet, but Batman and Robin. Oh, um, no, no. Such a such a terrible movie. <laughs> uh, I won't say anything about the movie, uh, but yeah, no. So that that was a case where I went to go see it with all my friends. I, I 
should have walked out of it, but I actually did see the whole thing. But uh, so the whole time during when I was watching that movie, there was this little kid who was like sitting right behind me and he was kicking my seat the whole time. And I asked them a couple times, could you stop doing that? You know, and then at some point, like I just I, I was so pissed. I, I just like st- I stood up and turned around. and I said, would you please stop kicking the seat? And the kid's mother was like, he's only a child. Look, what? like that excuses it. Like, if, I mean, you're a, you know, you're his parent. Why are you letting him do this? It's like I asked you like three times to. You know, please stop kicking the seat. And then, you know, so finally, of course, I got pissed off, you know? I mean, it's just, ugh. As if, as if anything could have uh, ruined Batman and Robin more than <laughs> Batman and Robin itself. But still. That's a nice thing, at least if it's a kid kicking your seat. You know they're probably not bigger than you when you turn around. You know? <laughs> yeah. But you never know about his dad. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah. I, mean, th- I mean, I have a couple other movies that people on Twitter mentioned uh if you want, if there's any of yeah. these you want to talk about, yeah, go for it. Um, so uh, we had a couple mentions of Chronicles of Riddick. Um, that's actually a candidate for a movie where you were asking, like, you know, was there something that I was excited to see that turned out to be just awful? Um, like Chronicles of Riddick, I was actually excited to see because I thought Pitch Black was actually quite good, and you know, it was sort of like a surprise good movie because it was like sort of an ind- independent you know, small budget film. Um, and it was like, I think it was the first thing I ever saw Vin Diesel in, you know, and uh, it turned out like, you know, the movie was actually pretty good, but then like Chronicles of Reddick is just ah, abomination. Like I hate it. Um, yeah. I, I, that was, I definitely turned that movie off after like 10 or 15 minutes, but, but yeah, so like other, other candidates uh, mentioned were uh, Howard the Duck, um, Aragon, uh, Event Horizon, which we talked about before and uh, Highlander 2. Um, oh, <laughs> Actually, Highlander is a really puzzling phenomenon, isn't it? Like, okay, so the first movie came out, and I was like, you yeah, know, it was pretty good, you know, I guess. I mean, I, I haven't seen it in years, and I, I was never as much of a fan of it as most people are. But, um, you know, it's like, so there was this movie. It spawned a sequel. The sequel was awful, and yet somehow it got a number of other sequels made and a TV show. How does that happen? And yet, like, something like Firefly, which people, like, just, like, love. There's, like, so many th- people who just, like, love that, like, nothing else. And yet, like, that can't survive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how does, how does Highlander ever get all this success? Well, and I mean, oh, Highlander 2 is so bad. But, uh, and of course, I've never seen anything. I've never watched anything called Highlander ever again after that. But yeah. I, I've heard that, like, Highlander 3, they just made it. And, like, they just completely pretended Highlander 2 had just never happened. You know, because like high, wise move. Because Highlander too. I mean, not only was it really horrible, but it completely ch- changed the whole sort of like cosmology of the whole mm-hmm. series. Well, because like, don't they make them aliens or something? Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. They, and they weren't. They weren't supposed to be aliens, but then then they were in Highlander too. I think, right? Yeah. Um, the the movie I've seen in the last I don't know how long ago it was, maybe the last five or six years or something that in the theater that I hated the most was Ghost Rider. No. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Um. And I never I, saw it because I heard it was so bad, but uh, I, I would probably be with you. Oh, uh, and I mean, most bad movies, I mean, the, you know, I mean, most movies you have like, the, you know, the act one, act two and act three. Um, you know, it, well, it's like, it's pretty easy to write a good act one and it's, it's fairly hard to write a good act two and it's really, really hard to write a good act three. And so most bad movies, like they start going downhill somewhere around Somewhere in Act Two, you you start you start getting the sense like, oh boy, this is going to be bad, and then by the end of the movie, you're just like, holy shit, that was horrible. <laughs> um, but even even most really bad movies, you know, the first twenty or thirty minutes often is 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 okay. You know, you, you don't quite get the sense of how bad it's going to be. But Ghost Rider was really noteworthy for just like from the absolute from the opening opening <laughs> shot, I was just like, this is going to be one of the worst movie, movies I've ever seen. I mean, just everything. Everything about it was corny um, and uh, just sort of melodramatic and just weird. And um, I guess you can't really talk about bad, bad fantasy and science fiction movies without mentioning Nic- Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or bad movies in general. <laughs> like in the last like decade or so, like he just made one disastrous decision after another. Um, but so in, so in Ghost Rider, I mean, you know. Actually, one thing that's kind of funny about Nicolas Cage is I guess he's just a really, like, like exercise fanatic. And so, like, there's a shirtless shot of him in, in Ghost Rider, and he's all buff. And, and the whole audience just bursts out laughing because mm-hmm. everyone thinks that's 
it's like computer generated muscles or something. And it's like, no, he actually is that muscular, but you know, it just, it just looks, you know, he just doesn't look like he would be, he just doesn't look like a person who would be that muscular. And so people just assume it's like a weird special effect uh, when they do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like I had seen, um, ghost rider and then not too long after that one came out called, was it called next? It was, uh, Oh yeah. It was, uh, it was supposedly, they claimed it was an adaptation of the Philip K. Dick story, The Golden Man, uh, which is a great short story. So I really wanted to see it because I wanted to see that. But, you know, I, I remember I just I walked, I walked up to the movie theater and there was the poster for it. And I just saw Nicolas Cage's face and I, and I had been planning to see it, but <laughs> I was just like, I just can't, I can't do it. I just, can't. <laughs> I just I turned around and walked home. <laughs> um Although I did watch it later on DVD, and it has nothing, I mean, it has nothing to do with The Golden Man. That was a complete mm-hmm. lie. Uh, yeah, you know, probably the worst movie uh, I can think of in the last uh, several years that I saw in the theater was uh, Doomsday. Um, yeah, no, so I, I, I dragged a bunch of, of my friends to go see this movie, and it's just like, um, and and actually, uh, I might, uh, might have... I guess I disagree vociferously with uh, some of our colleagues here at io9 who gave it a very positive review. Um, but yeah, oh god, I just, oh I hated that movie so much. Like just like everything about it, I hated. Um, and it's by the guy who did uh, Dog Soldiers and The Descent. You know Neil Marshall. Hmm. Um, and The Descent was actually the really Descent good. Is I great, thought. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know I was really looking forward to it. I mean I didn't care for Dog Soldiers even though like you know it had been very well regarded and, and so I was you know I, I saw that with some interest but then you know I didn't get into it. Um, but then but then you know I saw The Descent and The Descent was quite good and so I was like oh well and you know I was very excited to see this new post apocalyptic movie and uh, oh man it, oh, I just hated like everything about it. I mean uh, it's just so much about it that's. I mean, I could just, I could go on and on. And I'll just r- refrain, but I mean, it's just certainly amongst the worst movies I've seen um, of all time. But um, in the last five years or so, uh, certainly. All right. Well, I guess we could, we could probably go on and on <laughs> with uh, bad movies because, as we said at the top of the show, there are a lot of them. But uh, I think we should probably start wrapping things up. And uh, I don't know if you um, have any other really bad. <laughs> bad movies that you want to uh, particularly warn people not to see or you know if they're bad movies that are nevertheless sort of uh, worth watching uh, you should uh, post a comment on this episode uh, so just go to geeksguideshow.com and uh, find episode 40 uh, with Genevieve Valentine and click on the link to io9 and post a comment there and uh, if you'd like to help spread the word otherwise uh, if you can go you can go to iTunes and uh, find the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy podcast over there and you can leave a review or rating over there um, how many reviews are we up to now, Dave? Uh, 58. 58. We have 58 reviews. So, you know, if you like the show, uh, give us a little five-star rating there. And, uh, you know, if you like, uh, write a little review um, and, you know, help spread the word otherwise. And as always, we're sponsored by Audible.com. Uh, an audiobook that maybe you should check out is, you know, if you like uh, the sort of steampunk kind of thing uh, that uh, Genevieve Valentine was talking about today. You might want to check out the book Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest. We actually interviewed her, I think, back in episode five. Um, but this this sort of a steampunk zombie novel. It's uh, Sherry Priest is called the Queen of Steampunk. Uh, you know, it's definitely uh, something you should check out. It's now on Audible.com. And so uh, how it works, if you go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on any of the ads for Audible, it'll take you to a page where you can sign up for a free trial subscription and get a free audiobook. And uh, that would help us out a lot if you would do that and uh, check out audible.com and uh, Bone Shaker by Sherry Priest. All right. Well, that was our episode. Uh, Thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.